It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Crusader Airstrikes Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, seasonal allergy sufferer, along with my two friends. Who I think are feeling the same today. Yeah. Not me. Oh, not you Not me. That's Ben Wittes. He doesn't suffer from seasonal allergy symptoms. No, but he is joining the surveillance state. Are you? Yep. I mean, I thought you already were. Uh, no, no, no. I am officially... I you're an honorary member. But we're going to get to the that in the... Uh, oh. Um, in the object lesson segment. Okay, all right then. We will look forward to that. Uh, and always, uh, as always, I'm joined by my friend Tamara Kaufman. Hi, Tamara. Hello. You, you, you do have seasonal allergies. I do. My genes are not as superior as my husband's. I, have to admit. I don't know. What do you do? How do you avoid it? Uh, it's a genetic superiority. I have. Oh, um, I also on. only have two wisdom teeth. Oh, really? Yeah. This you is sh- proof he's a higher being. Oh, I'm the next are. phase of human evolution. No seasonal <laughs> allergies and only two wisdom teeth. Oh, that's going to get some comments. <laughs> oh, yes. Our readers will have a lot to say about that. Uh, okay. On today's show, Congress will have its say, finally, on the Iran nuclear deal. Sunni, Shia, let's call the whole thing off. And a key al-Qaeda leader who was once held in Guantanamo is killed in a U.S. drone strike. Plus, in our object lesson segment... We're going to answer a mystery from last week's show. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with Iran. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee this week unanimously, 19 to 0, approved a bill sponsored by uh, Chairman Bob Corker uh, that will essentially give Congress as many as 82 days, if you really take it to the full extent, or probably more like a couple of months, a little less than a couple of months, to review whatever final accord comes out of the P5 plus 1 talks and then decide whether to lift sanctions or not, be a stick in the mud or not, be more of a block or not. Um, let's discuss sort of what, A, like how surprised are you both that it was a unanimous vote, and what do you make of the sort of the White House, you know, Corker would call it spin, I probably call it spin too, that no, no, this is a great agreement we've come to, you know, we always wanted Congress to be involved. Really what it seems to me is that the White House dropped its veto threat of this when it became clear that you know, there was probably a veto-proof majority in the Senate for whatever the bill was going to be, and that they realized that they were losing Democrats. But how do you read it? You know, I, I think that's true. They were starting to lose Democrats, but at the same time, I think they managed to water the bill down to a point where they felt they could live with it. So you're right that they went back on their view that they didn't need Congress to vote on this thing. They had authority to do it anyway. But what Congress is actually going to be voting on is not the deal itself. And mm. that, that is a significant change from the executive branch perspective because, you know, legally, precedentially, they've always said they have an author- the authority to make a deal like this without congressional approval. It's not a treaty. And now Congress will not be voting on the deal. It will be voting on the president's waiver authority to lift sanctions, which is something that Congress gave to the president and Congress can take away. 
So, you know, setting aside the specifics of the politics of this deal and getting it through Congress, um, I think what the White House can say is they've preserved executive authority and they've avoided a precedent that would trip them up on other things. So, but they're going to still they'll still have the opportunity though to look at the final text of the agreement, the underlying classified material. It seems to me this could be an opportunity for people to to leak, to make speeches, to condemn the deal. So there's still politically there are ramifications for it, even if they're not voting on the terms of the deal, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression that the White House is not concerned about their need to make the sale. But one of the interesting things about this dynamic, since the White House reversed itself and decided to accept this form of what they're now calling the Corker Cardin bill. Corker Cardin. Uh, that it's bipartisan. <laughs> that should make everybody Stop happy. The first, it's first bipartisan piece of legislation to get through the Senate in, you know, how long? And it's, you know, it's significant that you had to remove the indicted guy from the name <laughs> of the bill. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in a way, the White House now has this in their pocket as they go back to the final phase of negotiations with the Iranians, and it lets them set a higher bar with the Iranians on the requirements for sanctions relief, because they can point to this and say, hey, we, got, we have to get this deal through Congress. That's a, yeah, go ahead, Ben. I also think that the, you know, it matters a lot if you're evaluating it from the point of view of the White House, what the default rule is. Mm. So the earlier versions of the bill would, would have required the deal to be subject to congressional approval. This requires the sanctions relief to be subject to a essentially a motion of disapproval, and that is vetoable, and can, the veto can be sustained with 33 votes in the Senate, um, or 34 votes in the Senate. And so, um, you know, this creates a very strong default that absent, you know, the loss of most of his own or a big chunk of his own party, the president can implement a deal that he signs, whereas earlier versions of the bill would have required that he muster a congressional majority for the, for the, the, the deal itself. And I think that that is a big difference from the White House. So why isn't then the White House, I mean, coming out and spinning this then? as this is great for us because, as you just said, this is about voting on sanctions, not the underlying deal, and ha-ha, look how smart we are, we wanted it this way all along. Well, I, I think they are spinning it that they're pleased with this, but they don't want to oversell their win because that would, um, that would alienate, I think, some of the congressional Dems that they're going to need on their side right. in these votes. It's by, I mean, it will still be an uphill fight, I think, to persuade enough members of Congress in both houses that they should let this deal go forward. And, you know, at the end of the day, the administration keeps coming back to two core arguments. One is there's no better alternative, so we might as well do this. And the other is even, you know, if we implement this deal and we're not happy with the outcome, we have all the same options that we had before. We can go back to sanctions. We could go back to potential use of military force. Both of those arguments are correct as far as it goes, but they're not exactly compelling positive arguments in favor of the deal. So you had mentioned that you thought the bill was watered down, Tim, and I've heard, I've heard people saying this. What, what to your read is, is watered down? Because I guess I look at it and I think, you know, was it really watered down? I mean, yes, there's the, the lifting of the, the president has to certify that Iran is no longer a state sponsor of terrorism, but it was my understanding that was never precisely linked to sanctions in the original text. Maybe there's some confusion about that. But then 
you know, they still have, they went from having 60 days to 52, but they could actually get 82 if they took the reassess. So what are the, the parts of it do you think were diluted that made the White House more comfortable? Well, I think the, the biggest dilution was what exactly is Congress voting on, which, which is what we were just talking about, that they're ultimately voting on the waiver authority for sanctions. And that is a very different dynamic. But they, they did manage to stave off or wall off these, um, what the administration would describe as deal killer amendments, whether it's certifying that Iran's not a state sponsor of terrorism or putting in a trigger that if Iran conducts any you know, terrorist attacks against the United States or sponsors any that the deal would be void, the requirement that Iran recognize Israel's right to exist. Now, these have been fended off in committee, but it's still got to go to the floor. The amendments could get stuck back on on the floor. They could get stuck back on in the House. So I, I think this is a temporary victory, and we'll see if it holds. Yeah, it was interesting after the, after the vote, Corker was adamant with reporters saying, this is always about sanctions. This is always about sanctions. So, I mean, he obviously wants to this is a victory for himself too. Well, it's an, I mean, it'd be interesting to go back to earlier versions of, of the bill and see if that's right. Um, I actually haven't done that. But well, Kirk Menendez was not, not about sanctions, right? I mean, that was also about approval or disapproval of the deal. Do I have that right? I believe that's right. Yes, that um, was that was requiring an up or down vote right, on the on deal. The deal. Yes, right. that was that's, a very different. And thing. that is from you know from the white from the executive's point of view a very significant difference. Huge. Be, right. Because yeah. the well, b both both presidentially, but both in practical terms, but also presidentially with respect to executive authority, you know, you don't want the principle that Congress gets to vote on every executive agreement with a foreign country, right. if you're the executive. And, you know, on the other hand, the source of authority for the sanctions themselves is congress a congressional enactment. So Congress obviously has authority to modify the terms of the sanctions. Um, so I, I think I think there may be a lot to be said for the deal as a you know as a compromise. I also think it's fascinating the way the the power and leverage dynamics have shifted on this over time. So when Kirk Menendez and and Corker bills were first discussed around December January and the White House issued its veto threat. The view was that Congress, in introducing these ideas, was taking leverage away from the United States and the P5 plus one in the negotiations with Iran because it would cause the P5 plus one to rush for a deal before Congress could act. Then the White House managed to delay action until they could get a framework agreement. Now the dynamic's completely different. The framework is out there. Sanctions relief is the part that's least spelled out. And now the U.S. can go back to the Iranians and say, well, we have the framework and we have this congressional bar we have to clear. So it really strengthens their leverage in the final phase of the negotiations. They've, I don't know if it was by design or just dumb luck, but they managed to take something that was very much working to their disadvantage and turn it to their advantage. I think that's right. And that, that's well said. And Cardin tried to make that point afterwards, but didn't do it as articulately clearly as you. That, neither did I when I was writing about this blasted thing all week. He could have called me for a quote. He, I, he could have <laughs> called you for a quote. Um, ben, let's move on to your wordplay. Uh, death reigns from above. Yes, so uh, there's this great New Yorker cartoon that one of, uh, one of our research assistants has hanging on the door of, of, uh, of an office which has the Constitutional Convention sitting around with their quill pens 
and the caption is, oh, and give the executive the right to rain down death from on high. And that is what the executive seems to have done today, uh, this week. Uh, uh, drone strike in Yemen killed Ibrahim al-Rubaish, uh, one of the spiritual uh, and uh, apparently operational gurus of uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, a, a Saudi gentleman. Um, and interestingly, for purposes of present conversation, a five-year former resident of the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Um, Mr. Al-Rubaish uh, has been for some time the poster child of not, not uh, being quick to uh, release people from Guantanamo. He was a relatively low-grade guy. Um, but his cred from uh, having been at Guantanamo um, gave him a lot of uh, heft when he was released uh, and was sent back to Saudi and then went to Yemen and really helped put together a QAP. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a very interesting story about, first of all, uh, I'm sure people who know more than, than I do about Yemen, about the role that AQAP is playing in, in the current uh, Yemeni chaos. Also, as some press have observed, the persistence of the drone war, even as the U.S. has withdrawn from the ground. But it's also an interesting Guantanamo story. You know, the executive is continuing this push to close Guantanamo, to repatriate um, people. And most of that has gone pretty well in the Obama administration in terms of people's re-engagement with the enemy. Uh, however, you know, Rubaish is a good example of the proposition that when it goes wrong, it can go really wrong and not just at the level of, you know, somebody who turns out to be a suicide bomber and kills some people, but somebody who turns around and really helps organize and, and get off the ground, you know, a major terrorist operation that is now, you know, from an anti-U.S. perspective, uh, probably the principal threat in the world right now. So was he, he was released from Guantanamo back to Saudi Arabia, and did he go through the Saudi de-radicalization program and then went to Yemen and joined AQAP? So I don't honestly remember whether he went through the de-radicalization program. He was part of one of the big bulk releases to Saudi um, during the Bush administration, and he was not considered a particularly significant figure. And then he um, but his shows time his time in Guantanamo made him a badass to AQAP, and they picked him up. Uh, I. I'll, I'll look this up while we're talking, but I think he's actually one of the founders of AQAP, and he showed up in, in Yemen uh, uh, some time after his release and declared, um, along with some other people, that, that you know, they were now starting AQAP. Um, and so, you know, he's played a pretty significant role over the years, um, and, you know, there's been some discussion of whether he's primarily a religious leader figure or primarily an operational figure. And you know, my, my colleagues over at the Just Security site have a hand-wringing uh, blog post this morning worrying that we 
targeted somebody who was essentially a religious leader, not a terrorist leader. But I think you know, if you're the leader of a major terrorist group, you can call that religious if you want. But it's that's pretty hard to argue that that should immunize you from. Um, yeah, I'm not sure just because your justifications for murder and terrorism are religious justifications that ju that should protect you. Right. And, 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 and what I find interesting about this too is, you, you, Ben, you raised the question about the persistence of drone strikes despite what's going on in Yemen. And I guess there's one of, you could read that one of two ways. I mean, I think the CIA and the military's take on that would be, see, we can still do high-level counterterrorism operations in Yemen just like we said we could, even though we don't have troops there. On the other hand, it could be, you know, this is <clears throat> one drone strike when we used to have many, and actually what it demonstrates is that we are doing very few of them, and, you know, maybe it's, we're yeah. only going to launch them when it really counts and not when we're going after lower-level guys. So this is a very interesting question because the answer to it has implications for the U.S. stance toward the Saudi-led operation in right. Yemen, which right now the United States is supporting with intelligence and logistics and so on. But um, but if the CIA concludes that it can get done in CT in Yemen what it needs to get done, regardless of the political state of the country, then that severely lessens the U.S. incentive to, to support an ongoing Saudi operation that whatever else it does gives AQAP more room to operate on the ground. Um, on the other hand, you know, it, it's also a way that the United States can say, we can fight AQAP as though there were no Houthis and we can push back against the Houthis as though there were no AQAP. We can have our yeah. cake and eat it too. So it, it, I would be very interested to know actually where the CIA is on this. Yes, if, if only somebody were a reporter has been mm, called in. I wonder who could do that. Mm, stay tuned. We'll find somebody. <laughs> Ben, did you find the answer on whether he is a spiritual leader or a, or a founding father? Well, I mean, he's certainly a spiritual leader. Uh, give me, give me one more second on this. Talk among yourselves. <laughs> well, but, but you know, it is <clears throat> actually it. It would be very interesting to hear what the CIA has to say on this because I think the perception when, when the ground forces finally, the last special operators finally left, there was this kind of feeling, and I mean, we wrote about this at the Daily Beast, that you know, it, this looks like this means that U.S. counterterrorism operations in Yemen are effectively over or are severely constrained. And, and when this drone strike happened, I mean, again, my first thought was, okay, well, you know, what does that mean? They're, they're nearby enough that they can do it. But what's also interesting here, too, is presumably our human intelligence networks on the ground are, if not completely dismantled. Disrupted, we could say. disrupted. So it would be very fascinating to know, we might not know this for years, what was the sequence of events in the targeting? Right. How did we get to this guy and know where he was because... Or I maybe mean, we just got lucky. Or maybe we just got lucky. That does happen. So the, um, so the answer to uh, Tamara's question earlier is that he did go through the rehabilitation program. But it he seems was clearly rehabilitated. But it seems like I may have uh, confused him with, with a different former Guantanamo detainee, uh, Saeed al-Shiri, who was also killed in a drone strike. Um, so the New York Times describes him more as a spokesman or, uh, you know, sort of... Um, kind of like an al-Awlaki figure? Well, so al-Awlaki was definitely very operational. Um, it's uh, sort of unclear. He's clearly leadership cadre, but he's not one of the founding fathers um, uh, as al-Shiri was. Okay.
Uh, well, tomorrow this actually leads well, very well into your wordplay uh, with about tensions flying between Iraq and Saudi Arabia over operations in Yemen. So fill us in. Uh, indeed. So uh, the Iraqi Prime Minister uh, Al-Abadi has been in Washington this week and uh, caused a little dust up yesterday with some public comments he made about the war in Yemen. And, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned in one of our earlier episodes that the Yemen operation, the Saudi-led campaign, feels like a historic turning point in Arab politics. The first time that uh, that you have this sort of joint Arab coalition intervening in a neighboring country to advance a, a broader regional geopolitical agenda. Um, Prime Minister Abadi's comments really uh, were um, a criticism of the Saudis. Mm. Uh, and he said there's no logic to the operation at all in the first place. Mainly the problem of Yemen is within Yemen. Uh, and, um, and he even implied, which the White House then denied, that uh, the U.S. government was not happy with the Saudis in Yemen and that the U.S. wanted a ceasefire. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true, as we were just mentioning. The U.S. is supporting the, the military operation. But Prime Minister Abadi, in saying this, that Yemeni problems are internal, that it doesn't make sense to have this Arab intervention, was reflecting, to some extent, the Iranian view mm. of this conflict. Mm -hmm. The Iranians put out their own peace proposal uh, this week as well, calling for uh, national dialogue and solving the problems of Yemen amongst Yemenis, and that Iran and Saudi Arabia should talk, but they're not going to talk about Yemen. That's for Yemenis to solve. So taking a sort of state sovereignty approach uh, as against the Saudis' interventionist approach. I think there are a couple things worth noting here. One is that part of Abadi's um, motive for criticism here is what the Saudis have done in launching this operation and in framing it in sectarian terms, Sunni versus Shia, they have turned up the heat uh, on tensions that rage across the region. And Iraq is at the epicenter of those sectarian tensions. A body is desperately trying to hold together a government with Sunnis incorporated, but Shia, who are the majority in Iraq, uh, are dominant. There's tremendous mistrust. There's been tremendous violence. And he's basically saying, you just made my problem a whole lot mm -hmm. worse, and I wish that you could tamp it down. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also trying to uh, take a, a position in the midst of this region-wide confrontation between the Iranian 800-pound gorilla and the Saudi 800-pound gorilla. And it's a very, very difficult uh, conflict for leaders of smaller states like Abadi to navigate. Um, so I think, you know, his his comments yesterday, the Saudi ambassador in Washington had a tough response. I think we'll probably see this continue to play out, but it's just a little illustration of the fault lines across the region and the way the Saudi intervention in Yemen is exacerbating region-wide conflict. And do we have anything to say about, I mean, <clears throat> can we what is it, what, to what extent can we massage that, repair it, or are we just sort of powerless to, to fill those cracks? I don't think we're powerless. Obviously, if the conflict in Yemen could find a political resolution sooner rather than later, which is, in fact, the United States position, uh, that would be good. But once, uh, once governments in the region, which and both Iran and Saudi Arabia are guilty of this, ratchet up sectarian tensions as a way of justifying their policy, it's very hard to put that stuff back in the in the bottle. Identity politics, 
are pretty powerful and we've seen that in Africa, we saw it in the former Yugoslavia and we're seeing it now in the Arabian Peninsula. All right, let's go on to object lessons. Uh, ben, why don't you start us off? So I have decided to join the Surveillance Society. Mm. Um, and what I am is that device you're holding? I am holding in my hand the, the original device that so upset uh, future Justice Louis Brandeis that he wrote the great law review article the right to privacy. I'm talking, of course, about a camera. <gasps> and um, heresy. The other day, I was uh, at my climbing gym, and I was taking pictures of my son, uh, who was. Uh, we had dressed him up in a in a very elegant business suit, and he was climbing a climbing wall. Uh, you dressed. know, one really should dress yes. to climb. And he looked fabulous. I mean, he really looked fabulous. Um, and I was taking pictures of him with my camera, and I was thinking, you know, we have all these opportunities for photography in our day-to-day -day lives now. You know, there are all these opportunities to embarrass people on the street by taking pictures of them, you know, misbehaving and, you know, chewing gum and spitting it on the street. Um, and we're all carrying around low-quality uh, surveillance devices. And so what I decided to do was to buy a high-quality surveillance device of a sort of primitive proto-nature and um, carry it around with me everywhere and take pictures, uh, planned and unplanned, um, uh, and you know, conduct basically what, what they call in the literature sous-valence, you know, surveillance. So not you're taking, you're taking pictures. Taking pictures. Um, and, uh, you know, it's springtime, and I had to somehow frame it in terms of rational security. You did, yeah. so, so you're saying that we are all the surveillance we state. We are all the surveillance state, and uh, by but the way... But you have higher resolution than I have days. higher resolution, a very good lens. Um, and that camera's made to look old. Yeah, it is actually so It is actually a very elegant little camera. And, um, and I'm going to... Uh, take pictures of cops beating people, and um, it's going to be, you know, just a whole new definition of surveillance. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. Yeah, you're, you're on to something. Uh, Tamara? You're such a trendsetter. <laughs> Clearly, I can see why you married him. <laughs> All right, well, we started out with uh, a signal of the season, that is uh, the fact that you and I are coughing and mm -hmm. wheezing. And we're gathered here uh, toward the latter half of probably the one perfect week of Washington weather that we're going to have this year. Spring in Washington is without a doubt the most glorious time of year. The magnolias sure are is. flowering, the cherry blossoms are peaking, all the, all the bare trees are getting their little green leaves. And yes, it, it makes us sneeze and wheeze a bit. My eyes are itchy, my nose is itchy, but not only does it give us opportunities for beautiful photographs, it just makes it a joy to walk around and be here. So much of our experience in Washington is colored by the fact that this is a company town, but during this one perfect springtime week that we get every year, I just think about what a joy it is to live in this city. Yeah. So I brought as my object lesson my cherry Ooh, blossom nice. photo that, that I beautiful. took this week, this one perfect that's week good. in Washington. 
It really, it really is one of the things that I, I love most about living here, and it's, it's, it's the, and it is fleeting, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's something very, almost, it's very Buddhist in that way. Well, it's very Japanese. It's it a good thing Japanese. we have cherry blossoms to capture that sentiment for us. It is, yeah. Thank you, Tamara. That's what makes us in a very happy mood. Now I'm do, sure. do you have a camera-oriented <laughs> object lesson? I do not have. I have a camera, but it's not my object lesson. My object lesson, actually, we talked last week on the show <clears throat> about this fantastic video uh, of this woman practicing some very badass self-defense moves um, <clears throat> while, wearing those, badass. while wearing those amazing shoes, too. I'm just that. <laughs> uh, and a, uh, a, a regular listener of ours, great guy Phil Walter, uh, emailed me a PDF of I, th- I want to say, I think I'm going to take credit for guessing that this had an OSS World War II connection. This is a copy of a book called Get Tough, How <laughs> to Win in Hand-to-Hand Fighting as Taught to the British Commandos and U.S. Armed Forces by Major W.E. Fairbairn. I love the fedora. Awesome. Yeah. You can see it right the, here. Yeah, that's glorious. And this book is just, I mean, it is filled with... Um, Diagrams, uh, moves. It, it clearly seems to be like published sometime after the war, I think. But it's uh, premised as, as teaching you all of the things that we taught the OSS and the soldiers and all that who fought. And of course, like every person in this, you know, who is, you know, in civilian clothes, many of them who is fighting some assailant, all the assailants look like SS troops or something and have sort of, you know, like vaguely German insignia on them. So I think it's clearly like something that came out of the, out of the war. But it's just got great stuff about, you know. Uh, how to get out of a bear hug. Uh, remo- uh, what is another one that I really love? Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. Is actually how to get out of a head of a hair hold uh, with both hands. Seize your opponent's right wrist and arm with a very firm grip, making him keep the hold as shown in Figure 39. This is if someone grabs your hair, and it talks about stepping forward and twisting back. Uh, and my favorite part is it says, note, it is possible that this will tear quite a bit of your hair out by the roots, <laughs> but it is very unlikely that you will notice it at the time. <laughs> so can we take the page on how to get out of a bear hug and send it to the Ukrainians? Oh, yeah. Any other way? Send that over to them for sure. Um, there is, it's, 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 it is absolutely a delightful, delightful read. Um, there is just a lot of just bare knuckled like street fighting dirty biting and we will shane will be demonstrating all of these techniques at the triple entente beer summit coming up on may 7th you will actually be able to see shane perform the getting out of a bear hug and the getting out of a hair hold technique against stuart baker um and uh who has been getting ready to grab Shane by the hair. Totally. And we've been practicing Which, this. Which, unlike Stuart, I still have some. And so that's, uh, you should come to the Triple Entente. Trash on, huh? talk. Yeah, we have that's trash right. talk going now. It's Look also out. entirely possible that I will uh, use the technique, which appears about 152 times in this thing, of kneeing your opponent in the testicles. <laughs> <laughs> Just when all else fails. <laughs> A that good is, old barroom brawl at the Lockyer Beer Summit. Oh, well, that is it for us. Uh, Rushville Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find all of our other great podcasts on our website, SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at RATL Security on Twitter. Uh, leave us a comment and a rating, please, wherever you download the podcast, Instacast, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your version of choice is. It's a great way to help other people find the podcast and to let us know what you think. And be sure to reach out to us on Twitter as well. Our editor is Jen Howell. Our music this week was performed by Senator Bob Corker and his unanimous coalition. 
<laughs> and Sophia Yan. <laughs> and Sophia Yan doing backup on the piano, as always, from Hong Kong. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.